Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. And um, what I would like to do is read from 2 Peter again, 2 Peter 1.3, just to remind you of what we, what we learned last week concerning the knowledge of God, and then we'll move forward in the study of our confession. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, or chapter 1 and verse 3 rather, says, His divine power was granted or has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And you'll remember that we sort of summarized the entirety of the teaching with this phrase or this, this idea that the channel by which we receive every single blessing, every single possible necessity for the Christian life, that channel, the way that we get it, is through a real, experiential, intimate, living knowledge of God. The knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory is, is how we come to obtain all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so I'm hoping that as we study these attributes, and I say this every time with the men when we read through the book and with the women as we begin the attributes of God, that, that we need to make sure that this is not merely scholastic, that it's not just knowledge, but that as you, especially as you read through the Scriptures daily, but as you hear about the attributes of God and you focus in on one attribute, one trait of God's character, that you are constantly under the, the, the remembrance of this, that as I get this and as this, really, as this gets me and wraps around me, I'm getting everything I need. And hopefully as you hear me talk about God and, and these, these, these sections will be just littered with Scripture... Uh, as we read the scriptures concerning God, understand I'm getting everything I need right here as I understand and know God. And remember, that was experiential knowledge. It's not knowledge of facts. It's true knowledge, reciprocal. I know Him because He's revealed Himself to me, and I, we fellowship one with another. So... We come then to the second chapter of our... Con or the second... Yeah, the second chapter of our confession, the first paragraph, this, this chapter entitled of God and of the Holy Trinity. And first, by way of, of sort of introduction, remember if you're looking at the, the grand outline of the whole confession, we're steer, still looking at the topic of basic or first principles, the, the foundational truths of, of Scripture. And then here we come to the second chapter of God the Holy Trinity, or of God and the Holy Trinity. And then as we look at this first paragraph, remember that in this first paragraph will be contained everything else in the chapter. Or everything else in the chapter is, derives itself from all that's contained in this first paragraph. That's why I believe it's just full of the attributes of God. Once you begin to wrap your mind around all of these attributes of God, then will flow everything necessary to understand about the Holy Trinity and so on and so forth. So this paragraph sets the, the order for the chapter itself. Now, another word about the structure of this paragraph, and I don't know if you guys have spent much time just reading through this first paragraph, but it seems that the, the authors of the confession have, have broken up this paragraph almost into two halves. The first deals with those qualities which are found in God apart from any created thing. Now listen to what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe you should hear what I'm saying um, or what I mean rather than what I'm saying. These are found within God's being and need no other created thing in order to be displayed or understood. And then the second category would be those qualities which are also found in God, and they are also essential to His being, and they also do not necessitate a created thing, but they are displayed in how God relates to His creation. So let me give you an example. If we open up this paragraph... 
the Lord our God is only or is one only living and true God. Now that has nothing to do with us as created things. It has nothing to do with creation. It does affect us because it is true, but it's not true because of or in relation to any created thing. It is purely God's being. He is one only living and true God. On the other hand, the fact that God is merciful, while equally eternally true, equally essential to God, is a manner of how of God's dealing with us. While He is eternally merciful, the way we understand His mercy is by looking at ourselves and how God responds to us. We need mercy and we see God display that mercy. Someone might ask, how was the mercy of God displayed in eternity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We would have to struggle with that one. But when we say, look at finite, fallen, sinful, rebellious men and God's goodness to those men, now explain God's mercy. See, that's a little easier. So, from the beginning of the paragraph to the word absolute, we find those attributes which are in God apart from any created thing and they can be understood apart from any created thing. He's the most pure spirit. He's invisible. He's without body, without parts, without passions. He's immortal, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible. All of these things, they, we do not have to look at the creature in order to understand them. However, after that word absolute, we have things like gracious, merciful, long-suffering, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those things wouldn't make any sense to us unless we first understand our sinfulness, our need, our fallenness. And so it seems like the paragraph is broken up that way. First then, which will be our meditation this evening, is this phrase. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. Now think about that. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. The subject, the Lord our God. The assertion is only or is but one only living and true God. Now notice there are no commas or semicolons in this phrase. That means the focus is not merely that there is only one God. The focus is that there is only one of this kind of God. There is only one living and true God. There's only one of this category. Now to be sure, there is only one God. And we'll return to that in a minute. But that, this phrase, living and true, adds those two qualifiers and that for good reason. Now to understand why those are important, we have to understand some other introductory points specifically dealing with the language of Scripture. First, let's define God. We throw around the term God all the time. I love God, you love God, let's worship God. Some people might say, well, Muslims worship God and Christians worship God. We all worship the same God. What, 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 what do we mean by God? What does the Bible mean by God? Well, here's some secular definitions of the word God. If you just type in God, this is what you'll find. The creator and ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being, a deity, an image, idol, animal, or other object worshipped as divine or symbolizing a God, or an adored, admired, or influential person might be considered a God by secular definitions. Now what's interesting is that in Scripture, all of these definitions are used or are connected with the terminology of God. Let's think about some of these words in Scripture. In the Old Testament, you'll see the word God, Elohim. In the New Testament, Theos, God. That is a reference to the Creator, ruler of all things, the one with sovereign power and sovereign authority. Or you'll see the, the word Lord in the Old Testament, Adonai. In the New Testament, Kyrios, which means the one with supreme authority, the master, the ruler, the sovereign. And then other times you'll see in all caps the word Lord, which is a reference to Yahweh, the covenantally revealed name of God. So we see the word God, we see the word Lord all throughout Scripture. 
And we need to understand that when the Bible uses the term God, it will use that word for many things. First, it will use that word for things that are obviously not God, based on the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith. For example, in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7, I said, quote, You are gods. This is God speaking. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, we know that men, or some might see this referring to angels, they're not God, but it still uses the term God. The word God is also used for Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We obviously believe Satan is not God, but that word is used. And then the word is also used for things that are perhaps less obviously not God. Like in Genesis 35, 2, when there's a reference to false gods. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. There, again, we know, we're, we know that we're not referring to the one true and living God, but the Bible uses the word God or gods. But then also, this word God is used to represent the true God, like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The point I'm trying to make is that all of these terms are not necessarily exclusive in meaning. Sarah called Abraham Lord. Well, that doesn't mean he's God. That doesn't mean he's, he is the Adonai, although the word is still used. The context of each use of the word will explain what the passage is dealing with. And so then we need to understand what the Scripture really teaches about this idea of false gods. Because when it comes to the idea of a supreme being, a deity another object worshipped as divine or symbolized by God, we have to be able to differentiate between the one true God and what the Bible calls gods. And in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20, Paul tells us, he says, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. When it comes to these false gods that pagans worship, with which they have true, listen to this, True spiritual communion with, by faith, they're actually worshiping demons. They're worshiping demons who are parading as God because they believe in their hearts that these things are real and the demons of Satan will take that opportunity to actually catch and bind and commune with the spirit of man. And I don't think we have to argue as to whether or not demon possession is a real thing. But God makes it clear. If someone is worshiping a false god, it's not just that they've gotten confused. It's not just that they have a different opinion. They're worshiping a demon. They're worshiping the demons of hell. Now the goal tonight and moving forward is to contrast all of that with this confessional formulation, one living and true God. Again, the idea is not just that there's only one God, which there is only one God, but that there is only one living and true God. Remember that in Scripture and in the marketplace of idea, ideologies of the world, a lot of things are called God. There's only one living and true God. So first, let's look at this idea of the living God. And as we look at this, I want you to ask yourself, have I treated... Or in my mind, have I maybe even accidentally thought of God as less than the living God? And here we can start again with secular definitions. We'll get back to the Scriptures eventually and let the Scriptures explain what they mean. But when we say that something is living, what do we mean? We mean it's alive, we might say. Negatively, if something is living, it is not dead. If something is living, there's animation. There's a real, continued, personal presence. If a thing is alive, it contains a principle of life 
that proves itself through the signs of life, what we would call vital signs. You can tell if something is alive and if something is dead. Another way of thinking of this word living is if I were to say that this police officer here is living proof of the utility and the benefit of a bulletproof vest, what do I mean that he's living proof? I mean he's standing here alive with you, exhibiting all of the signs and functions of life, proving that his life was not taken by a bullet to the chest. He's there and you can see him. Now if he were lying in a casket and his face was green and he wasn't moving and he wasn't breathing, and everyone was walking by his casket looking at his dead body and I said, he's living proof that a bulletproof vest works. And you would say, oh, he's not living. He's not doing anything. He's dead. He's showing these signs of life. His senses are working. He exercises response mechanisms to the outside world. There is energy within his body that's causing his organs to function properly. He's alive. He's living. A math problem is not living. A picture is not living. Perhaps you have an idea for a new invention in your mind. While it might be real, really there, it's not living. Because these things do not exhibit signs of functioning in reality. They don't respond. They don't have senses. They don't have, uh, they don't of their own natural existence interact with reality. On the other hand, our God is the living God. He is the opposite of all of that. And this is very much the idea that we have in Scripture when it describes God as living for example, very simply, the Scriptures assert that God is living. Psalm 18 and verse 46 says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Now notice it doesn't say the Lord used to live. It doesn't say the Lord will live someday. It says He lives, and that settles it. Presently, right now, and for eternity, He simply lives the Bible, the language of Scripture also calls God the living God. For example, Deuteronomy 5.26. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still lived? Now notice here, the living God speaks. He has interaction with reality, with creation, of His own volition, He speaks. In Joshua 3 and verse 10, Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. In other words, you can know that the living God is among you. And how is that? He's going to act. He's going to do. He's going to part these waters. He will interact with His creation because He's the living God. In 1 Samuel 17 and verse 26, this helps us a lot. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now think about it. You've got the Philistines on one side and Israel on the other side. Philistines worship Dagon. He's a figment of their imagination. Dagon could very adequately be, be displayed by a statue or a picture. You can look it up right now. Look up. You can Google Dagon. You can see pictures. It'll show you exactly what Dagon was, what he was thought to be. Why is that? Because he's not real. He's in their mind. He was not the living God. But these armies had defied the armies of the living God as over against Dagon. In Psalm 42 and verse 2, we read, My soul thirsts for God, the living God. In Psalm 84 and verse 2, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now a thirsty soul does not long for something intangible. It doesn't long for something fake or phony, something that doesn't really exist. A thirsty soul longs for something that is living, that can actually give life. Just like with your mouth, if you're thirsty, you don't want a picture of water. 
You don't want somebody to describe water to you. You don't even want to watch a video of water. You don't care what water is made out of. You want actual water in your mouth. You want something that can give life. We also see this same truth in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas are about to be worshipped by the men of Lystra in Acts chapter 14. And in verse 15, Paul says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now these were men who worshipped false gods. They didn't have any problem exalting these two men and saying they're gods. We'll add them to our pantheon of gods. But God is the living God as compared to these vain things, these idols, these figments of imagination. Turn away from this because there is a living God. And in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You see the comparison there. The living God is juxtaposed with the idols, and then the difference is made manifest. They're dead. He's the living God. He's not like them. He's alive. God is the living God. God also calls Himself living. In Isaiah 49 and verse 18, we read these words. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. In Jeremiah 22 and verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Ezekiel 5.11, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. Notice, God Himself refers to Himself as living. And notice this is not just some attribute of God, some attribute of His nature that He takes for granted or that we would just bypass, like, well, yeah, God's alive, sure. No, it's, it's so crucial to His nature that He swears by it. As I live, as surely as I am the living God, I will do this. And we can take it to the bank because He is the living God. Now, the best way to understand that God is the living God is to see how the Scriptures compare God to the dead idols of men's invention. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, if you will. We'll read some longer passages here. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 18. Notice the idea here. To whom then will you liken God? Who, who would you, what likeness compare with Him? An idol? Here he's going to describe the idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So what characteristic do we learn about an idol? It won't move. Flip the page to Isaiah 41. Beginning in verse 41, or, uh, 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord... Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, and, and, and here again it's describing these proofs, these idols. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things. What are they, or what they are, that we may consider them. The, the language is sort of sarcastic here. That we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. 
do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. In other words, do something. And then in Psalm 115, verses 3 through 7, we read this. We can turn there. It's worth it, trust me. Psalm 115, 3, one of my favorite verses. 3 through 7, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Notice what he's, he's comparing all of these, these characteristics or the negative characteristics of idols with the God who is in the heavens who does all that He pleases. Listen to this. Think, is this the way you think about God? Movement. Understanding. Declaring. Doing. Speaking. Seeing. Hearing, smelling, feeling, walking, making sound. These are the actions of the living God that idols, that is dead gods, cannot perform. They cannot interact with the reality or creation. They cannot sense in any way. They cannot receive information. They cannot convey information. Why is that? Because they're dead, lifeless objects. And I'm afraid many of us think of God that way. We think of Him like a dead, lifeless object to be analyzed and thought about and talked about rather than one who moves, understands, does, speaks, hears, smells, feels, walks, makes sound. Our God is the living God. He's not a math problem. He's not an idea. God is not a picture. God cannot be represented by any picture or any image in any way. He is not an it. He's not a figment of our imagination or of our thoughts. God does not exist in our minds. He relates to us as we take hold of Him by faith through the truths of the Scripture. He's living. He's active. He's personal. Functioning, working, moving, interacting with creation and reality. God is a living being. As a matter of fact, He's more living than any of us could ever even imagine. He's so living. Spurgeon says that God is living means that He, quote, or is, quote, possessing underived, essential, independent, and eternal life. Very often we don't think very much about the fact that the trees growing outside are living beings. How, how often do we think about God as living? The way that this comes into reality is that we interact with Him. He speaks. We listen through the Scriptures. We speak through prayer. He responds in acting, in reality, in the sphere of creation because He is the living God. Secondly, He's the true God. He's the true God. We'll sort of connect these ideas here. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. So you see the relation. They're, they're put together. In 1 John 5.20, it says that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Our God is the true God. If something is true, that means it is according to truth. It's according to reality. Or we might say it is genuine or authentic. And so while the fact that God is living stands to oppose the deadness 
of any man-made idol. The fact that God is true stands to oppose the falseness of any man-made idol or, and this is important, or false understanding of God. It's very easy to condemn false idols made by the hands of men. To look at a, a carved image or a totem pole or some icon shaped into the, the form of, a, of some sort of creature and say, well, that's obviously a false god. Or to look at the stars and say, well, that's obviously a false god if you're worshiping it. But how easy is it to condemn false ideas about God in our mind? You see, there are false gods and then there are false ideas about the one true God, both of them present to us untrue gods. Little g. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 32. And in these passages, it's very important that we pay attention to the language and we think about what's being said by those who are acting in these scenes. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 4. Speaking of Aaron, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel. And notice how they describe them. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now keep that in mind and turn now to 1 Kings chapter 12. First Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam obviously didn't get the memo about golden calves. And so he makes two of his own. And in First Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 27, it says, If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. In verse 32 of the same chapter, Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. That's important. Just like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. He placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now in both of these scenes, the intentions in the heart of Aaron and in the heart of Jeroboam was to worship the one true God, the God that brought them out of Egypt. The problem was both of these men imagined that the true God just might be worshipped in a way other than that which he had prescribed. Maybe we can worship the one true God, we'll just use a golden calf. We can worship the one true God, we'll just do it in Bethel. We'll just do it in Dan. We'll just do it on the 15th day of the 8th month instead of the 15th day of the, I think it was the 7th month was what it was supposed to be. You see, here's what's, what's important. God's Word is essential to God's being. And so if you separate God's Word, God's truth, from His being, you all of a sudden have a God who's not the one true God. And so to worship in this way is to worship a false God. You're not simply accidentally or mistakenly worshiping the one true God, you're worshiping a false God simply because you have the wrong thoughts about God. Now somebody might object and say, well, that's not worshiping a false God. That's just confused worship of the one true God. Sort of like using a picture for worship. Just confused worship. Well, here's the problem. We might let it slide if you mistake one man for another man. 
One woman for a woman, someone's this dog for that dog, this horse for that horse. Why is that? Because there are billions of people. There are all kinds of men. It's, it's not unusual to mistake one man for another man. There's only one God. There's not multiple gods to confuse him with. To confuse God for another is to actually replace the one true and living God with a dead or false God of your imagination. You can't confuse him with another. There's not another. He's the only one of his kind. He's the only one true and living God. And so because the hearts of all men, as Calvin would say, are perpetually at work creating our own idols, our own gods, and that can be proven throughout history. Look at every society in history. We create our own gods. The scriptures and the confession work to teach us about the one true God over against this obvious visible idolatry. Men may create something with their hands or they may create something with their imaginations and say, God, that's God. The problem is they're dead, lifeless, and false. Or as Isaiah would say in Isaiah 41, 29, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Nothing. They're false gods. And so those are our categories, true and living, or living and true. The question is, how many gods are there that fit into that specific category? Now we have a very specific category. He's got to be living, and he's got to be the true God. Well, the answer is, from the confession, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. And so what is the main force of the biblical teaching or the biblical defense against lifeless and false gods? The answer, there's only one living and true God. So there can't be more than one. There can't be multiple. Only one living and true God. Now the Bible asserts, positively speaking, the Bible asserts there is one God. Deuteronomy 4 verse 39 the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Psalm 86, 10. You alone are God. Romans 3, 30. God is one. James 2.19, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God. The Bible also gives us this truth about God from God specifically or, or, or directly. In Isaiah 45 and verse 5, we, we read from the mouth of God directly, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In Isaiah 45 and 20, verse 22, For I am God, there is no other. And when we read in Scripture that God is one, we're saying He is singular in his divine essence, in his being, he is one. In his most essential and inherent, and even that's a strange word to use, self, he is one. He's singular. He's undivided. He's alone in his class. And so that means that when we study the attributes of God separately, and we're learning that He's one, that he, he is, His subsistence is in and of Himself, that He's infinite, that He's the most pure spirit, that He's merciful, He's holy, He's loving, He's gracious, He's long-suffering. Even though we study His attributes separately, we must remember they are all attributes of the one God, the one divine essence. And as we will learn, God is not complex or complicated. He's simple. He's one. Simple, pure being. 
God is not made up of His attributes. He is His attributes. Now think about the human composition. We might say, I am body and soul. And when you get my body, you might say, I'm bones and skin and blood and guts. You put it all together and you make me. If you take something away, you have less than me. God's not that way. He doesn't have a body. He's not made up of parts. He simply is one. So His attributes are all of the one God. All of His attributes are God. And without these attributes, this logically flows, without these attributes, you don't have God. You take one away, false God, untrue God, dead God. His attributes are who He is. And so if you don't have His attributes, you don't have God. This is why images, idols, statues, they may not represent God because they don't show His attributes. Only His Word can do that. As He says in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What if, we, what if we carve the idol and just say that it's God? We'll say that it's Yahweh. It's just something to help us. It just, we just look at it and it helps us think about God. Does it have all of His attributes? You see, God's glory is the sum and the total of all of His divine attributes all together, blazing forth in unapproachable light and effulgence. That's His glory. A picture can't show that. A statue cannot convey that. A mental image in your mind cannot do that. God is one. God's glory is one. God's attributes are one God. Again, any picture or statue or icon or idol that a man might create or conjure up to represent God serves one purpose, to tell you a lie about God. It cannot show you all of His attributes. And so if you see someone with the crucifix and Jesus is hanging on the cross, that can't show me God's attributes, His attributes. I can't see in that crucifix fully God and fully man, eternally reigning in the heavens. Prophet, priest, and king, you can't see that. Only the scriptures can convey the fullness of the glory of God. And so, there's no point. These things can't do it. It's not possible. God is one in chronology, the scriptures tell us in Isaiah 43.10. He says, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, and be in the middle, there is no God. Not only is God one, but there is only one God. There has only ever been one God. There will only ever be one God. The Scriptures are clear. There's only one God. And so this means, negatively speaking, there are not many gods. There are not three gods. There are not a billion gods. There are no more gods to come. There are no more gods in the past. There are not many ideas about God. There might be many ideas about many imaginary gods, but there's only one true revelation of the one true God. Remember, God is not an idea. He's not a thought. He's not a conception. He's not a feeling. He's not a force. God is a living and true being. You cannot have wrong thoughts about God and still have the right God. If your thoughts are wrong, you've got the wrong God because God is one. You can't have the right God with the wrong conception of that Wrong, I think, should be set against or compared with incomplete. Does this mean we have to know everything perfectly about God to know the right God? No, it does not. There's a difference between incomplete versus wrong. I'm thinking wrongly about God. The Lord our God is one, only, living, and true God. 
Now, what implications does this have for us? Again, I said at the beginning, these first several attributes sort of deal with God as He is all by Himself. So does this have anything to do with us? Well, of course it does. First, our worship must be directed toward the one living and true God. You can't have a different conception about God in private worship, in family worship, and in public worship. He's the same God everywhere. You can't have a different conception about God than Scripture reveals. You may not worship God, contemplate God, or think of God with regard to any physical or created image. It won't work. Our worship must be, as Jesus Himself tells us, in spirit and in truth. In John 4, that means our worship is, is spiritual worship. It's not physical. It doesn't have to do with our eyes. And necessarily, necessarily what our ears hear it has to do with our soul communing with God. It must be according to God's revelation of truth, not according to a lying image or picture or icon. So when we worship God, we must make sure that we worship the one true and living God. Secondly, all of life is to be lived out for the glory of the one living and true God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now that doesn't mean I do this and I, I like to think God's cool with it if I do it. I do this and I sure hope He is happy. Or it makes me happy to do it and so God must be happy, therefore it's to His glory. That's not what that means. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. He only has one glory. And it is all of His divine attributes shining forth. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do so so that all of God's divine attributes would shine forth in everything you're doing. Now that makes your eating and your drinking a little more serious. All of your life must be done in that way. Don't live one part of your life as if God is sort of like this. He, maybe He's a little relaxed on sin when I live like this. But then when I'm around these people, well, this God, He's serious. Well, that's, we can't do that. All of life is to be lived out for the glory of the one true, the one living and true God. Anything done with the wrong motive or conception of God cannot be done to the glory of God. He does not bestow lesser amounts of glory on lesser ideas of Himself. He is His glory. All of life for the glory of the one living and true God. Now if we think about that and we begin to think whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and I have to have the right conception and the right motivation about God, that makes life a little more serious, doesn't it? Everything you do becomes a lot more serious than it was before. Turn to James 4 and verse 14, and this will be the last application. We should be thankful that we serve the one living and true God. Why is that? James 4 and verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Think about that. What is your life? You're a mist. It's November 19th, 2017. It'll be Christmas in like two hours. It'll be New Year's in three days, it seems like. It's just flying by. It's just going, going, going. These kids that are small, they're going to be adults before we even know it. It's going. What is your life? It's a vapor. Even you and I are but a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. The earth was spinning before you got here. The earth will be spinning when you leave. And everything will keep on going just like it's always gone. Peter says, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. We're here and gone. In Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 4, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
all of the created order is just fading. It's just getting older and older. Nothing's eternal. It's groaning. It's, it's dying, we might say. But then we can say with Jeremiah, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So while every created thing is wasting away faster than we even know it, faster than we can conceive, eternal life comes to those who know the one true living God and those who are being created anew in Christ Jesus. Psalm 36 and verse 9 says, With you is the fountain of life. To know God is to have life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so small, so insignificant, so short-lived. We're like a flash in the pan. We're like a puff of smoke. We're like a speck of dust on a railroad track. Insignificant. But you are the living God, living and true. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to take shelter and seek refuge in Christ, who is the true God. Help us to see your acts in creation. Help us to plead and pray for your continued action in our lives, in the lives of those around us. Lord, I pray that we would not settle for merely an idea about God, merely thoughts about God, but I pray that we would beg and plead for the living God to step into our lives and and work, and act, and move, and see, and hear, and smell, and walk, and speak. Because you are the living God, much more than an idea to be studied by scholastics. You are the God to be known, to be fellowshiped with. You, should, you showed us this explicitly by sending your own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, by condemning sin in the flesh, that we might live forever. Lord, help us to see how mighty you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.